Goals are reversed. I'm saying yeah. hello first. Oh wow! How does it That's feel? Exciting. A little weird. It's like sleeping on the other side of the bed. You know, you wake up and you're like, "What the hell's going on here?" What is this? Uh, well, Rob, another day in America and another mass shooting. We're starting out heavy yeah. on this one. Yeah, seriously, it's like the the news of constant. Uh, bombings of Gaza and the mass killings of Palestinian people has been broken up just ever so slightly by this, uh, a, another domestic mass shooting in America. So yeah, everything's really, the news cycle is really positive right now. It's really, uh, really a good situation for everybody. Yeah. From one atrocity to another. Now reports uh, of this main Lewiston, Maine shooter, he went to various local businesses and used an assault rifle to kill uh, anywhere between 10 and 20 people. I think that the, the, the fatality count is still being determined with 50 to 60 potentially or now are, Jesus. are, are injured. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a mess and they still haven't caught the guy, but we're not going to focus too much on that. It's just yet another grim reminder that this is a problem that is unique only to the United States. And that's it. The size and scale of the gun epidemic in this country is unique only to the United States. Nowhere else. And even in spite of this, nothing will happen. Like, you can confidently say that. No matter how bad the massacre is, no matter how many people get killed, how many people get hurt, how frequently these things happen, nothing will happen. Nothing will change. And I don't even know what to do anymore. You just see it, and you're you're so desensitized to it. It's like, yeah, that, that that is that is a thing that happens here now, and you move on. And a couple of days later, there's another one. I I just I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do or what to tell people really. Um, but you were saying there was some interesting findings about who this guy was. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it just it's not really surprising at this point because this seems to be the sort of mo for everyone that goes on one of these very like similar sort of mass shooting sprees, just following all the usual suspects of like right wing influencers was a big like Elon Musk reply guy uh, kind of thing. Um, it's just it's it shouldn't really be surprising anymore. But someone that's deeply stewed in this in this toxic uh, right wing sort of uh, media ecosystem. That seems to be a really common thread for everyone that that carries out one of these horrific attacks. And you know, since we've been talking so much about um, you know Israel, Palestine, and the and the violence that's been going on uh, there right now, the horrendous bombing campaign of of Gaza that we're seeing right now, I think there's uh, you know we wonder why why this only happens in America. And um, I think obviously the proliferation of guns is a big part of that. Obviously. Um, I don't know totally about the personal details about this guy. Uh, like a lot of these mass shooters, especially in schools, are often uh, legally purchasing firearms the moment that they're legally able to. So, I mean, that seems to be a, a pretty obvious uh, answer for why that's going on there. Um, but it's still just ideologically, it's there is something kind of, that seems kind of broken about America that we're leading to that kind of thing. And I think there's something to this idea that like the kind of violence that America projects around the world, I think that has a psychological uh, impact on people when America, you know, it's, it's a primary source of America's vast wealth is, is arms transfers and the arms manufacturing industry is like one of the big building blocks of the American economy and exporting this violence around the world you know, throughout the world in the war on terror in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria and Somalia and Pakistan and 
Yemen and elsewhere, um, and of course subsidizing this this relentless brutal violence in in Israel right now. I just I do think that there's something about um, the the violence that America projects just around the world and has for its entire existence. You know, I'm just talking about the last. 20 years with those examples that I mentioned there, but you can go back further and further all the way, you know, to Vietnam and Korea and uh, Panama and Guatemala and, you know, name a country, um, Chile, you know, this is what, this is what America does around the world is it projects this kind of violence. Uh, and uh, I really do think that that has an impact on people. And that's, that's, a, there's a direct link between America's role in the world uh, as both an arms manufacturer and as a as a direct contributor to this kind of brutal violence, with uh, this kind of violence that we're seeing people carry out uh, on a fairly routine basis in the United States, um, I think it's a really some really grim thing to think about. But I think there's really something to that idea, and uh, you know, it's it's it, I think there is a link between you know covering that kind of a horrific domestic mass shooting. And this the the brutal violence that America is subsidizing right at this very moment in Gaza. I think these two things are are connected. Absolutely, the the war always comes home, and when you condition people, I mean, this guy was uh, an army reserve guy. When you condition people to respond to any situation, any sort of problem with violence, it's no surprise when these types of things occur. When you make weapons of war available at the consumer level. When you have people who are dealing with what is reported to be, uh, quote, rapidly deteriorating mental health, and that goes unchecked, they have access to these weapons. You have no safeguards in place to impede that access. And again, you have these people who are trained to act out or resort to violence in, in different situations. It's, it's just no surprise. And we see this time and time again. Added to the fact, like you're saying, he's consuming what seemed to be a diet consisting solely of right-wing ideologues. And he is, you know, and seemed to be inspired by these people who have just been fanning the flames of hate professionally for profit, for personal gain for years. I just, and nothing will, nothing will change. I just, I don't know what to, what to make of these anymore. Well, I mean, it's hard to learn any lesson or to, to feel any kind of, any hope that, anything's going to be done to stop these things from happening. I think like many, for many people, I think after Sandy Hook, when the United States government responded to a Sandy Hook by doing nothing at all and making no real changes at all. Um, I think that was probably the moment for a lot of people when they realized when this is just not going to be something that's ever really uh, meaningfully addressed in any way. Um, as, <laughs> as horrifying as that is. Yep. That was the moment the government told us, this is something you're just going to have to live with. Yeah. If you're lucky enough. <laughs> if you're lucky enough to live with it. Uh, yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, but It's another day in America, as you say. It's quite, it's quite a country you got there. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, our conversation with Mindy Eiser that, that's coming up next, while it focused on like our past several conversations, it focused on what's happening in Gaza, I do think it had more positive elements. Wouldn't you say? I think this is a little bit more of a positive conversation. We're, we're, we're trying. I mean, it's, it's really hard. We're, it's, it's really hard to feel uh, positive right now. You're looking at your phone and looking at the news cycle and seeing some of just the most horrendous things you can imagine right now. And, and feeling, getting this, being made to feel crazy, I think has been the, one of the most difficult things about trying to watch this play out and seeing feeling isolated, alone, and alienated um, as our governments just like totally subsidize this this absolute horror show. And we talked a lot today about how uh, valuable it is, uh, you know, when you can come together, when we can show solidarity with one another, show solidarity with people uh, in Gaza, with Palestinians, people that are victims of this kind of violence. Um, the, the, the main, that's such a helpless feeling seeing these things, seeing this story play out and, and feeling so powerless to do anything about it. And, you know, we did talk a little bit about the things that we can do, um, as little as it is, you know, people like, uh, we have limited, uh, input, limited ability to actually affect what our government policy is on this. Um, but there are things that we can do to, to, uh, you know, 
organize together to show solidarity with each other and to try and do everything we can to uh, to demand a a stop to the uh, the brutal violence that we're seeing. So we talked a lot about that today. We talked about the the way that Israel kind of weaponizes the grief and weaponizes the trauma of Jewish people uh, in order to create consent for the 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 brutal violence that they're undertaking. Um, yeah, and a lot of other things. It was a really productive conversation. I really enjoyed talking to Mindy. Yeah, it, it was great. Let's let's get into that because yes. I think some of the things that she said, again, were encouraging in, in spite of uh, the news that we've all been consuming for the past few weeks. So Mindy Eiser, who talks about Jewish resistance to uh, Israel's actions and attacks on Gaza, uh, we get into how people have weaponized grief and, and Zionism to justify what's happening and some of the more complicated, uh, tough conversations regarding the latest developments. That conversation will be coming up right after this. Yeah. Nice. Stole your bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? Yeah. And now we're joined by Mindy Eiser. Mindy, you are uh, an activist. You're an organizer based in Philadelphia. Uh, there's been a ton of great actions, specifically in Philadelphia, but uh, across the country, organized and led by uh, the Jewish the Jewish community speaking out against what's happening uh, in Gaza. This is a very difficult time for uh, a lot of people, for the Jewish community, for Palestinians, uh, for the broader Muslim community. It's, it's been tough for so many different groups and I've just been continually inspired by the, the Jewish community in the United States and at large around the world speaking out for, uh, Palestinians and people in Gaza and the West bank. And uh, we're thankful to have you here to, to tell us what's happening, tell us what's going on, kind of the moral imperative for the Jewish community to speak up on behalf of, of Palestinians. But before we get into that, Mindy, how are you hanging in there? How are you? And um, how are you preventing yourself from kind of spiraling into despair and in what is a very difficult time? Totally. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, I'm certainly feeling a lot of despair, um, but actually, and like maybe this sounds corny, but like being able able to take collection has really helped like stave off those feelings of like deep deep desperate horror because I feel like I'm doing everything I possibly can um to say that this is wrong and to try to bring attention to the need for a ceasefire um and that's the only thing that's taken me out of like my constant like horrible like doom scrolling yeah and into like being with other people and just doing something anything yeah i mean it absolutely um it helped me a lot uh just to get out in montreal there was a there was a protest a couple of days ago very very cold day and rainy and it was really inspiring to be out there with uh, thousands of other people it's something that's come up a lot but this feeling of alienation you get when you this this constant barrage of sort of sort of propaganda coming from the media class and the way that all of our political class seems to be going along with it. You sometimes you look on Facebook, you see friends and family kind of expressing like ideas that you find really abhorrent, I think in these cases, and it's, it's so isolating and it's such an awful feeling. So it has been, uh, it's inspiring for me to see the actions that others are going on. It really helped me to be around other people that are like-minded that agree with it and, yeah, because otherwise you're just you're isolated. You're on your phone, and if you're anything like me, it's similar. Like your every my whole Twitter timeline is just this nonstop barrage of just this, the most horrible things you can imagine. So it's been really reaffirming to be able to to do that, spend a little time doing that. Twitter is like my political space, so I follow people who basically share most of my. So I'm seeing like all of this news out of Gaza 
and it's horrible. And then I go on Facebook, which I, I still have. I feel like the only young millennial like, still uses it. Um, and I see like people I know from childhood. I grew up in a really uh, Jewish area right outside Philly. Um, I went to Jewish summer camp. Uh, I went to Hebrew school three days a week. So people from my past who are Jewish posting things that I'm just like, whoa, what the fuck? Like we are, we live in totally different worlds. We're experiencing this so differently. I think we all need to have grace and understanding for people who were just, you know, brought up to see this if you want to call it a conflict, if you want to call it a, you know, whatever from one perspective, and that may not be the same as ours. And there's an unlearning that a lot of people do over time, or we would, we would argue maybe need to do still. Um, and I, I think it's important to continually remind ourselves of that. Even if we have friends who are, you know, immediately we're like, oh, we got to stand with Israel and may not have responded with the same urgency when Israel began attacking Gaza, which has now lasted three weeks. And even people who, you know, oh, any other time of the year, they might express sympathy and support for Palestinians, but they may not be showing it here. I think it's always good to remind ourselves there's a lot of like... <laughs> I want to choose my words carefully, but there's just a lot of things that they were told and, and, and the way they were brought up and traditions and um, shared understandings that are difficult to unlearn. I mean, for perspective, I was brought up in a super conservative, super religious family, and it took me a little bit to kind of shake that off. Um, so I'm always, I'm always a bit more understanding when people are trying to get out of that because it it's tough. You're always you always in the back of your mind are brought back to early childhood uh, upbringing, rituals, traditions, understandings, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, first I want to say like yes, the propaganda for Jews grow up learning, at least in my perspective, in my family, in my synagogue, is really really intense, and there is certainly like a lot of unlearning that needs to happen, like a lot. Um, which is why I'm grateful for spaces like If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace, because they allow people to question these things in a Jewish way and to like do politics Jewishly. Was there a specific moment for you that that started you on that path of kind of unlearning that that sort of the way the way your your upbringing kind of told you to think about these things? Um I was always like a really contrary child. Um, like if my teacher said something was one way, I would just assume it was the other just cause I was like a little asshole. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of already primed for that. Um, and then I actually did go on birthright. So I, people so completely changed. Um, I remember being in New York airport before we were leaving to fly to Tel Aviv and I said to all like basically everyone in my group like I'm pretty left-wing like I don't think I'm a Zionist like I'm a little worried about like that aspect of the trip and all these people were like yeah me too I feel the exact same way and then like a week and a half later they were all like wearing IDF t-shirts and like singing Kumbaya and I was standing there like uh, okay. And then I, I ended up staying with some friends for a few extra days in Israel who are also not Zionists. And that was helpful for me to like, get that reframing, regrounding. And I think since that moment, it's, I've been this way. Yeah. Well, I kind of interrupted you though. I guess uh, it's interesting to just hear about, cause you know, I have, a, a, when I talk to Jewish friends of mine, they often talk about this kind of like this kind of upbringing where these ideas about Israel are really kind of promoted really heavily. And um, I, I know if we're all growing up in the empire, we're all kind of inundated with propaganda. So I think that's something that's like crosses different cultures, but it seems to be a very specific version of that uh, in some of these communities. So I'm always interested to hear how people um, kind of end up uh, uh, unlearning these kinds of things. But I did kind of interrupt you there. So if you wanted to just talk about some of like to relate that to the actions you've been on right now, it's interesting to hear about uh, what you've been up to in the activist space as well. 
Yeah. One other thing I'll say, which I think is like a really perfect encapsulation of this is on my birthright trip. Um, the last day they took us to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust museum. Um, and we heard from a Holocaust survivor who like was talking about how desperately we need Israel. So there's no, another Holocaust doesn't happen. Everyone hates Jews. That's the Holocaust. That's why we need Israel. It's like just pounded into you. So you're just constantly like expected to be living in like fear, like, oh, everyone hates you and everyone wants to kill you. And like, that's why you need this special little place, um, which I reject as a socialist and a just person in the world. Um, but yeah, today, um, a bunch of organizations, Jewish organizations, Palestinian organizations, um, had a demonstration outside of Senator Fetterman's office in Philly. And actually, it was one of four events across the state today at Fetterman's different offices around the state. So there was one in Harrisburg, one in Wilkes-Barre, one in Pittsburgh, and then obviously one in Philly. Um I'm sure you guys have seen like some of his horrible posts on Twitter. Yeah. Um, it's been really gross. Yeah. It's crazy. He's like fucking vile. Like, so just like out for blood. It seems I'm, I'm really, yeah. really surprised. I knew that he was like a Israel guy, but the extent to that I think has really been revealed over the last couple of days, like to a really kind of gross grotesque uh, level. Yeah, it's it's awful. And, you know, I voted for him. I voted for him in the primary. I was excited about him. I knew we didn't share, you know, all the same politics, but I I didn't just vote for him because I was voting against Dr. Oz. I was like, oh, this is actually like a cool person to vote for. Not perfect, but good. And now I feel disgusted. I will not be voting for him again. And I know that's true for a lot of other people who are, you know, concerned about the the Palestinian struggle, but also just like anti-war activists, you know, people who are opposed to death, which, you know, there are, I think, many of us in the world. Um, so, yeah, we had a, you know, 250 people marched his office and then a third of us um, occupied the street in front of his office. Um, you know, risking arrest. We actually didn't end up getting arrested, but we were all prepared to. And I think we're planning to continue going back to his office and making sure he hears from us. We also called, like basically everyone called the office while we were sitting there and the staffers were not happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love to see so many people that typically aren't engaged in that way either even if it's just calling or writing to Congress. Uh, like I put together a, a site that l allows people to just quickly email or call. And the number of responses, first of all, I was like overwhelmed at how many people, it's like almost 100,000 people have already done that now, which is sick. But the the amount of people who have just, who have responded, like, how was that so easy? Like, how was that so fast? Like nobody really does that. I mean, people do especially a lot of, of older people, AOC did a stream about a, the need for a ceasefire last week and said, like, I'm getting called constantly and have been for years now from people who just watch Fox News to whatever, just argue in defense of the status quo. But no one is calling and no one is constantly calling about Palestinians until now. Like, we should be doing this repeatedly because they do take notice. Another Hill staffer told me that they keep track of every single topic and the number of people who write in or call in about that topic and what stance they take. And they can, and they do an internal calculation of how many pro, how many against, and they were overwhelmed this week. Finally, for people calling and emailing about Palestinians, like we need to be doing this constantly. And I think there's a sense of cynicism that has unfortunately crept into a lot of people, especially on the left that, their actions don't matter. Certainly their vote doesn't matter. Any civic engagement doesn't matter. And that apathy is very easy to exploit by people who, you know, it's a catch-all term, but just for brevity, who just want to maintain the status quo. And that's really unfortunate because that manifests in moments like this where everyone's just like, well, we got to stand with Israel. They have to defend themselves as they kill now 7,000 plus people and kill, including 3,000 children. That is 
should be just abhorrent to everybody. Like you say, everyone should be mortified by that. But you have people in power who just don't see that pushback from their constituents that enough people don't want it. I would hope that doesn't lead to a huge Republican groundswell at the ballot box because of apathy. But as people, um, Walid Shaheed pointed out that there's a very real risk of uh, Muslim voters sitting out, especially in places like Michigan, as a result of the U.S.'s policies on this. And people just screamed at him. Oh, I guess you'd be better under Trump. Like no, nobody wants that. No one thinks that. But just the apathy is a very real factor. And I, I, I really hope they start taking that into consideration. Muslims in Michigan not voting for Biden is not apathy. It's I mean, yeah, it's it's sure. anger. It's rage. I mean, as of right now, this could change. But as of right now, I can't bring myself to vote for John Fetterman or Joe Biden again. And like I live in Pennsylvania. I'm constantly told how important it is to vote in these elections. I always vote. I'm a super voter. And I always vote evil because I'm like, it takes five minutes. I, it's a block from my house. There's no excuse. It doesn't change the other work we do every single day. But right now, I, I feel sick to my stomach at, at the idea of it. And I know that could mean another Trump presidency, but like, I don't think that's my fault. I think that's Joe Biden's fault. Like the president of the United States, that Joe Biden is up there in speeches, now like casting doubt on the idea that of the numbers of Palestinians that are being killed. That to me is so sick. Like if that was a Republican president doing that, everyone would rightfully call that out for being just horrifying and like abetting war crimes. And the fact that this is the, it's the leader of the Democratic Party doing that and all these kind of so-called progressives kind of going along with that is so sick. I mean, I mean, I, I get it. Uh, it's really hard to make that lesser of two evils argument when, um, and yeah, you can look at certain social policies or certain things that Democrats are going to be better on, but like, it's hard to make that lesser of two evils argument when they're completely giving the diplomatic, uh, okay for this, this horrendous mass bombing campaign they're kind of they're downplaying like what what the Palestinians are saying about their the the death totals. You've got representatives of the State Department going out there saying like, "Hey, this is a war. And it's bloody, and civilians are going to die." And so I wish we could do anything. Um, it's it's awful. Like it's really horrifying. Um, you know, they could stop this right now. They could stop this anytime. The Israel's continued activities, to say nothing of this current bombing campaign, is one hundred percent dependent on getting billions of dollars of military aid every single year unconditionally um no matter what laws they're breaking or what international law or what kind of crimes they're committing accused of there's this this non-stop flow of money keeps uh going and this idea that they're just powerless to stop it they're doing this kind of rhetorical thing they're saying like oh we're very we're really concerned we're giving them the full okay and we're paying for them to do this but behind the scenes you see we're we're really showing our concern and really urging restraint. It's to and people see through this, you know, if it's such bullshit, we see the horrible violence that they're abetting. They're trying to use this kind of liberal language to to soften that a little bit, but it's extremely grotesque what they're part of and and every person, every liberal, every person in the Democratic Party is getting painted with that now. Totally. I mean, especially the thing about the questioning the death count uh, that like made me feel just physically ill because I have a one-year-old son and I have been thinking, I'm sure you have too. I, I know you're also a parent been thinking yeah. about like what it would be like to lose in this way. Sick and like overcome by it. And then on top of that, someone basically telling you that that didn't actually happen and you're lying is like, I mean, I just don't know what I would do and how I would act. And actually, like, I don't know if this is appropriate for the podcast, but it really puts into perspective, like, every kind of like destabilizing political action that the US has done in other countries and what has been created from that, like all of the terrorists that have been created from like the U.S. meddling and um, destabilizing regions has this has made me realize like 
oh, I, I kind of get it because if someone like bombed my house and killed my kid, I really don't know, which again is not to like excuse no. any kind of violence, but I think it's, it actually like when it happens repeatedly over and over again, you have to start to think like, oh, okay, this is a pattern. Why? What what conditions have created this? No, yeah. I mean, it's it's not excusing anything, but it's something that we've been talking about a lot. I mean, you talk about the people of Gaza. Gaza is a concentration camp. People are growing up in that system from the, from childhood to adulthood. And, you know, given the ways that every single form of peaceful protest is, is demonized and criminalized and it's attacked, um, it's not excusing anything, but it's just, it's, it really important to anyone that we talk about this, we recognize what's causing that violence. It's, there's not some innate, innate thing within Arabs or within Palestinian people that cause them to act violently, but it's, it's a direct result of what had this system that's been put in place. Uh, it's, it's part of this cycle of colonialist violence that I've been talking about. And you can't really have a serious conversation about it without acknowledging that or pretending that it's somehow like offensive or verboten to just acknowledge this basic truth that most people around the world recognize. History did not start on October 7th. Like what <laughs> no. are, what happened in the last 100 years that led up to that moment? Like that needs to be, talked about and discussed and there are people who refuse to do that there's just this amnesia we just had this moment where we celebrated finally withdrawing from afghanistan and i felt like there was some collective acknowledgement that this was a colossal mistake at least people were fiending like it was uh, a mistake and they regretted it and within that was a was a tacit acknowledgement that that inspired other people in that region to affiliate with, organize, or join other groups that the U.S. and other Western countries deems as terrorist groups. And that was a direct consequence of the Iraq and Afghanistan invasions and, and those, those wars. But now all of a sudden it's like, well, surely these people who are acting and resorting to violence are just only doing this in a silo. There's no other context. There's no other inspiration. It certainly can't be that they have been in an open-air prison for decades. IDF has tormented them, killed their friends, their families, their neighbors, you know, bombed them, shot them just for peacefully marching up to this fence that if they get too close to at other times, they would be attacked or shot. Like that is That will torment people over time. We can't really understand fully the psychological effects it would have on people. And you know what? You mentioned yeah, you're not condoning violence. Yeah, the, the required caveat for every conversation about this context, <laughs> Hamas yeah. is bad. Like if you don't explicitly say that, you somehow are, are offering support, which is just ridiculous that we're, we're, we have to do that. But that's how people have really weaponized uh, grief in this moment. And that's, and that's another thing I wanted to, to talk to you about. We saw some really great actions, uh, if not now at the white house, last, I think it was last week or the week prior. And the sign just really stuck with me. It was Wallace Shawn, uh, the actor who, uh, been in many things. Yeah. Most, I, my favorite role of his is princess bride. And, sure. uh, He's just iconic in that movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And he <laughs> and and he had a sign that said, My grief is not your weapon. And I have just been thinking about that since I saw it. Uh and I Mindy is somebody who's in the Jewish community, someone who's Jewish and, and thinks about this a lot uh, in terms of your identity being weaponized to justify further violence. I mean, how does this reaction that well israel's just defending itself and we need to protect israel as a state the jewish community is under attack and yeah sure uh, on october 7th many many jews were attacked and that's obviously heinous no rational person is arguing otherwise but i would argue and i think most people who center and value peace in the world would argue that more violence you know <laughs> exponentially greater violence at the hands of a state is a is not a moral and ethical response. I mean, how do you see this grief being weaponized, and how does that make you feel? 
Yeah, I mean, 1,400 Jews have been killed, were killed on October 7th. That's obviously awful. Um, I don't personally know any of them, but my stepsister lives in Israel. So, like, I, there are people I care about who live there. That's true for most Jews in this country, I'd say, or maybe not most, but many. Um, so, yeah, there is definitely grief. And then, but like, my first thought, honestly, was what is this going to mean for Palestine? Because now 7,000 Palestinians have been killed, thousands of them children. Um, and like, you know, every, in my opinion, as a, as a Jew and just a, a human with a soul, I hope, um, I think everyone's life has dignity and is worthwhile and everyone loved by someone. And if we're just looking at the body counts between, you know, Israel and the IDF, um, versus Hamas and whoever else, I mean, there's no comparison. Israel has killed so many more people. And like you said, the violence just begets more violence. And like what Israel is doing to Palestine is not solving any problem. It's just killing more people, which I think is what they want. But like 7,000 people and counting this is continuing, it's just getting worse, is more than 1,400 people. And that's not to in any way dismiss or diminish um, the people who um, were killed on October 7th. Um, but it, it just is worth saying, I think, that so many more Palestinians have been killed just in this, this specific conflict in October um, and over the last few decades. Um, and also I saw something today or yesterday about, you know, settler violence has obviously been a thing, uh, increasing thing over the past, however many years. Um, and I saw something from, you know, settlers are planning on taking matters into their own hands. I think their words and doing vigilante violence towards Palestinians and I did not see any Zionists that I know or follow on the internet say anything about that, even though that's, I think, the same as Hamas, probably even worse because not even a pretend political organization. It's just psychos who are saying out loud, I want to kill you because you are not Jewish and you don't belong here. Like that to me is obviously worse but no one is saying anything about it. yeah i mean it's something that we talked a little bit about in the last episode they did that we did with uh sana said how it's kind of this sort of insidious thing that gets happened where um you know when it comes to palestinians like not only do palestinians you know not have any the the, the um the monopoly on violence is held entirely by israel and the israeli government and you know, there's really no like that. There's no ability for Palestinians to to uh, engage in that in any way, and not there. So they don't have any monopoly on violence, but also there's no civilians. Like, and you you hear from people in the Israeli government talking about this, just like painting everyone, every single person, whether they're a doctor, or a teacher, or a journalist, or women or kids. Oh, they're all Hamas. They're all targets. They all voted for Hamas. They're they're part of it. And they they deserve it. So everyone gets, no one gets that that shielded by that civilian designation. Whereas on the Israeli side, like not only did they have full monopoly monopoly on using violence, but everyone gets painted with that civilian brush. Even people like in the IDF, even armed settler groups that are like getting weapons and and carrying out terrorist attacks against people in the West Bank, um, which is just a sort of very fucked up and insidious kind of propaganda technique, but it also makes it really difficult to talk about when every single person gets painted with that same kind of brush uh, of kind of innocence. Well, and exactly. And I think the same thing, the inverse is true about grief. Like only Israelis and Jews are entitled to grief. And I think that's part of the dehumanization process. It's like Palestinians are not people like they don't have loved ones. They don't have the capacity to love. I mean, I don't think most people would say that out loud, but I think that is like this of you don't 
don't think like anyone will miss them. You don't think that they're worthy of love. You don't think that they're capable of love. And I think that goes back to something you were saying earlier about this idea that like, there's this like innate savagery or like barbarism inside of them, which I think is what a lot of these like right wing nut jobs think. I mean, it's obviously just racism, but the consequences of that belief are, you know, extremely real and extremely dangerous and violent and dehumanizing. There was a Israeli official, his name is escaping me, but he was a former representative to the UN from Israel who just yesterday, I believe on Sky News, was doing an interview talking about general support for what Israel is doing, justifying what Israel is doing right now. And the interviewer was like, well, what about Palestinian civilians? And he said something like, I'm just so tired of hearing about Palestinian civilians. Um, I don't remember uh, people crying over the Taliban after, uh, you know, the U S invaded Afghanistan. And, but in between there, he called Palestinian. He didn't say Hamas. He explicitly said Palestinian, the Palestinian people and called them like, inhuman animals or something like that. And we've seen, that's not the only time that we've seen someone, especially someone connected to uh, Israel's government, use that type of language to describe Palestinians. And that dehumanization that you're talking about is unfortunately very prevalent. And it gets complicated, of course, when you bring in Hamas. And I think that dehumanizing rhetoric is leading to moments and stories like we just saw yesterday from Middle East Eye, and I, I saw Rob, you had shared it, maybe you saw it as well, Mindy. It Reportedly, it, it, maybe we need to see some more um, sourcing on it, but reportedly right now, Israel is planning to launch a chemical weapons attack in, in these tunnels that Hamas uses. And this is a very complicated topic because I think for a lot of people, their knee-jerk reaction was going to be like, good, fuck Hamas. Let me just take a step back. Yeah, like no one is justifying them or that they're killing of innocent people. But at the same time, some war crimes aren't okay just because of the target. Like we have to be universal in our application of what we think of as international law, even if it's not really enforced. And I'm just, I'm curious if, if both of you, I know Rob, you had seen it, if Mindy, you've seen this and curious for both, of, for both of you, how you were kind of thinking through this pretty complicated moment. Well, for what it's worth too, I would say that Seymour Hirsch also reported that, you know, he didn't mention anything about chemical weapons, but did report that like the idea of like using bunker busters on these tunnels or like these, these like major uh, kind of bombs and attacks used in the war on terror to clear out those kinds of uh, underground systems has been, has been used as well. I do think it's like, it's really disturbing, especially given that we know of these hostages that have been taken and like these hostages that were just released the other day spoke of being kept in those tunnels. So the idea that like they're openly discussing how, you know, how much truth is there, I guess we need to see more reporting on it, but the idea that that would be getting discussed, I think is, is really disturbing. And I think has some really disturbing implications, especially given the way that like the stories that these released hostages were telling were kind of going quite contrary to what the, Israeli government has been saying about about what's been happening and was kind of described by uh, Israeli state media as being kind of a big propaganda disaster. Um, these these released hostages who spoke of being treated humanely and and you know um, it's it was not something that I think they were very happy to hear about being spoken about in the media. So the idea that there's some kind of possibility of of attacking that tunnel system with either chemical weapons or or bunker busters or whatever. I think the implications of that are incredibly uh, grim when you when you put it like that. Yeah, I agree, and I think Israel has made it clear in a few different ways that their number one concern is not the host hostages; it's destroying Palestinian life. Um, and I feel like for me, as a Jew, as a U.S. citizen, I feel like what is most important for me and for people me is to just continuously demand a ceasefire, like demand my representative support a ceasefire because I'm not in Israel, I'm not a citizen, I can't go there. I think there's only so much I can 
I can have my opinions about their government, obviously. And Netanyahu went to my high school uh, a long time before me. He's a Philly guy. Yeah. yeah, I think he went to high school with my dad, actually, because um, my dad went to my <laughs> high school. So, um, but yeah, I think like whatever you think, whatever you think Israel should or shouldn't be doing, um, I think we can all agree that the bombing has to stop and we need to get humanitarian aid into Gaza immediately and help them start to rebuild because this is, I mean, when this is over, if it's ever over, I mean, the future is really, really bleak and grim, even worse than it was before. And it was hell before as well. I got to mention too, uh, and like, I don't know, I don't know how you two feel about this. Um, Cause every time we've tried to talk about this, I don't want to try and I don't want to make any effort to deny that horrible things have happened on, on October 7th, especially like you're saying. Um, and I, like, I, I think that there were terrible things certainly that did happen. I will say though, that it seems like through some of the testimonies that I've seen, like in Israeli state media of survivors um, of one of these kibbutzes, it hasn't, been quite like they haven't been describing the exact same situation that was described by the Israeli government. Um, there's been a lot of talk about like crossfires with the IDF uh, and these like heavy firefights. Um, and it's kind of gone against this narrative that was promoted after October 7th about kind of like just indiscriminate mass killings. And again, I don't, I don't want to go too far down that path of just like pretending that nothing bad happened. That's not something I believe, but do either of you get the sense, though, that at, at the very least, there's maybe a bit more to the narrative of what actually happened than what has been told to us by the Israeli government and has been repeated by our mainstream media? And the fact that this has been really used for them to go ahead with this ultra-violent kind of ethnic cleansing project that they kind of have been wanting to implement for, for some time now, like... Do you think there's any truth to that? Like, is that something you think about or is that too far down the path of uh, conspiratorial uh, tinfoil hat stuff? What do you, no, what do you make I'm of that? I'm a big, first of all, conspiracies. There's a, there's a place for them in our world. <laughs> my, my husband's name is Kevin and everyone calls him 9-11 Kevin because he's a conspiracy guy. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think there's certainly a lot of really serious questions about, like you said, the crossfire, uh, the reports from people who were hostages themselves, and then also like Israel having warning about the attack and doing nothing to stop it. I mean, even before that came up. Yeah, speak that, of 9-11. Yeah. Right. Well, that's actually what my <laughs> husband said. He's going to kill me for saying this, but he was like, there's just no way they didn't know. I mean, it's Israel. They have the most like technologically advanced for better or for worse, I would say worse, um, security system in the world, there's no way they had no idea. Now, of course, it's coming out that, oh, actually, they did, and they didn't do anything. And I think, Rob, to your point, it's because, I, I mean, this is really crass, but I think their thought process is like, well, you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Like, we might lose a 1000 people, but our end goal is going to be so much better. I think also, and whatever is true or not true, obviously, a lot of people are grieving. And I, I really feel that and respect and want to honor it. And the thing that I think is actually the most important coming out of this is that so many of those people, people who lost family and friends, are saying, are begging their government to stop the war on Gaza, because they're saying like, this is not going to bring my family member back. This is just going to hurt other families, both in Israel and in Gaza and West Bank. And we need to put an end to this. And to me, that kind of moral clarity, I mean, it's easy to be sitting here, uh, even as a, as a Jewish person who's been like inundated with Zionism my whole life, to, to say like, oh, the moral thing to do is to free Palestine. But to be sitting there in the midst of it all, to be mourning your lost sibling, mother, child, and to say that, I think takes a real, a real like moral clarity that honestly is, I think, very impressive and, and beautiful and gives me hope. In the immediate aftermath, we saw many people rush to compare October 7th to 9-11. And now in the aftermath, we're seeing, yeah, it very much 
is <laughs> a very, very similar incident from the, the foreknowledge to the seemingly lack of action to the extreme overreaction uh, framed within this language of, you know, justice. That's the thing that's been just driving me nuts. Like th- this whole framing is wrapped in this hollow language of justice. And it's just, it's not, it is it just indiscriminate killing. And nothing, like you say, Mindy, nothing is going to bring the victims back, but th- it seems to suit a larger goal. And it really seems to be that they want to just start in Northern Gaza Strip with this ground invasion, just continue pushing everyone south and just clear out Gaza Strip. Hopefully not, but seemingly once and for all. And the Western world and especially the U.S. is just standing by allowing it to happen, justifying it. Every once in a while, you'll, you'll, th- you'll throw in, oh, maybe we can get a humanitarian pause, please, maybe just, just for a second. And that doesn't materialize, and people are being starved, people are without clean water, people are, you know, we're on the risk of now the ambulance service uh, completely going down in the next 24 hours because of a lack of fuel. This blockade is just horrific. It is, uh, there was a segment actually I was surprised, NBC, their their 24-hour streaming service did a segment earlier today explaining how this blockade constitutes a war crime. I was surprised to even see that. That's just kind of how biased the coverage has been, but I guess small victories. One thing that I was going to say that reminded me of what we're talking is like, what's really crazy to me is that, and I think it gets to this like double standard and dehumanization thing, is like... Israel obviously understands the like desire for revenge and reprisal um, when their people get killed, but they have no understanding for like Palestinians resisting in whatever way that is, ways I agree with or disagree with or, you know, find whatever. They, they, they don't understand. They, it just, to them, it exists in a vacuum. Like, they are deserving of, um, you know, taking revenge on others, but Palestinians are not. Like, they just don't feel like, like, they should just, I mean, everyone's saying this online, but, like, we can't do BDS. It's, like, illegal in a bunch of states here. We can't protest nonviolently. When they protest nonviolently, they get shot out and shot at and killed. Um, and then when they do this, which, again, is bad, um, you know, it's, it's over for them. So it's like, what are they supposed to do? And the only option is just to like die quietly. And like, how can you ask someone to do that? How can you expect someone to do that? No one is no one who respects themselves and respects their family and loves themselves and like the possibility for life, which I think we all have inside of us. And they shouldn't. You mentioned like growing up, uh, and being kind of inundated with the sort of, uh, narratives, um, about Israel, you talked about, you know, you're Jewish, everyone, everyone hates you, everyone wants to kill you. And um, again, this is something that I try, I try to be sensitive when I talk about, because I know, uh, of course, Jewish people do experience anti-Semitism and violence sometimes. A lot of the time, this violence is coming from like right-wing neo-Nazis and not so much like Arabs or Palestinians here in the West anyways. But you can see how this mentality is kind of manifested in some people. And it creates what I consider to be very kind of bizarre moments like i'm thinking about that columbia professor that had that big self-righteous rant where he's just screaming hooting and hollering saying like i have a beautiful seven-year-old son and i read harry potter to him every night and these pro-terror student groups who are just marching and saying and saying free palestine and they're supporting people that are being bombed into the into the fucking ground uh and killed by the thousands and people are coming together, student groups are coming together to say, like, we don't agree with this. We don't support this. We want to end the blockade. We want to, we should free Palestine. And just taking this very, like, this stance of, like, somehow my child asleep in the United States of America is somehow being threatened by pro-Palestine student groups. To me, it just strikes me as, like, bizarre. I find it so strange and and completely unhinged. To take this moment when actual children are being murdered by the thousands, like literally, that's not even exaggeration, even if Joe Biden or whoever else wants to dispute those numbers, um, actual children are being are being killed 
and the United States government is paying for it and subsidizing it, as is the Canadian government. And then to make yourself the victim, you like in America, an American university professor, to make yourself the victim of that, and your your children the in this fantasy that you've concocted where they're going to be victims of violence. And that's the problem that we need to kind of talk about right now. To me, it's just, it's so delusional. And I wonder sometimes when I see people like that, whether it's the result of just this kind of, this kind of propaganda taking hold or if it's cynical or, or what's going on, but no, it's I find deeply, it, deeply I find it unbearable. No, yeah, it's, it's so it's embarrassing. Scene. Like it's the most <laughs> embarrassing thing ever. Like so many people I know have been posting like, check on your Jewish friends. We are not okay. And it's like, you're right. You are not okay. You are mentally ill to be making this <laughs> about you. You're literally posting this from like, you're someone I know who literally lives in a $3 million house in Philadelphia posted that meme yeah. on her Facebook story <laughs> thing. And I was just like, you are posting this from your $3 million home in Philadelphia. Yeah, you're like, fine. Get a fucking grip. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's completely insane. And actually, that's the thing that's been making me the most crazy about this. I think because it's like more low stakes than like babies dying, which is like heartbreaking and makes me want to die. Um, but like seeing like people like Barry Weiss talking about how hard it is to support Israel, oh, yeah. how there are so many consequences for supporting Israel, like people are losing <laughs> friends and losing jobs. And same with this Columbia professor being like, I might get fired for this. I'm not yeah. tenured. Literally like, the opposite of no. that. Is Name <laughs> one person who has gotten fired for supporting Israel. You have the entire U.S. government on your side. You have the entirety of the Western world on your side supporting you. It's the, it's the normative position to hold. Meanwhile, real actual people are getting fired, losing job opportunities, losing access to like prizes in their field for making the tamest comments about Palestine, literally just acknowledging that Palestinians are people and are also dying right now. That's it. Losing their jobs. Like it makes me feel insane to even pretend that they're not even close to similar because one is real and happening and one is like a make-believe fantasy that people have because they want to feel oppressed. And I truly, I believe anti-Semitism is real. I've experienced it. I've seen it. I shooting that was like yeah. heinous, horrendous, awful, depressing. And our real enemies as Jewish people, like you said, Rob, are Nazis and white supremacists and they exist in this country. They are growing for whatever reason. Most of our mainstream Jewish organizations are not concerned about them. They're concerned about Palestinians and other Arabs who are not a threat to Jews. They're not a threat to Jews. And like, similarly, I'm sure you saw the horrible story about the synagogue president Detroit who was stabbed to death. And like, yeah, awful horrible and i saw on twitter everyone like tweeting at rashida talib like this is your fault you did this like this is like all this is blood on your hands because she's like a quote-unquote anti-semite because she's palestinian and supports palestinians meanwhile in real the real world that like we all live in uh she the victim rashida talib were personal friends so rashida was actually mourning the loss of her friend, not just like a constituent, but a friend. And from what I've read so far, it appears that it was a potential domestic violence situation. The police said there was nothing pointing in the direction of anti-Semitism. It was someone that she knew so and invited into her home. So not in that kind of sounded victim blaming. I don't mean that, obviously. So yeah, just yeah, yeah. people yeah. like just jumping to these insane conclusions when like at the same time, a few days prior to this, a child, a little boy was murdered by his landlord when he like went in to hug him, which honestly, like, I mean, I can't. It's even, one of the most horrifying things I can, I've ever heard of. I know. It's like, it's, I mean, I don't really believe even have like, I hope this guy the killer burns in hell for all eternity. Um, like that's a very real consequence of Islamophobia, which is 
linked to anti-Semitism. We have the same enemy. It's it's uh, white supremacy. It's Nazism. It's fascism. And that's what like Jewish leaders in this country should be focused on, not the free Palestine movement. And I think something they do is they try really hard to make like the Jewish left seem really fringe. Like we don't represent anyone. Like we're just a really loud minority. And it's true. We are a minority, but there have been political minorities throughout history that have since been vindicated. People who are against the war in Iraq, for example, like everyone now is like, of course I was against the war. It's like, bitch, no, you weren't. We have the receipts. Um, And I hope that, I mean, one, the, the Jewish movement for Palestine is growing. And I think this was <clears throat> a huge breaking point for that. Um, I was at the demonstration in DC on October 18th, 400 Jews got arrested, myself included. Um, and I heard a story from someone who, someone in their crew that they got arrested with had identified as a Zionist two weeks prior to the event. But how quickly and how horribly things were unfolding in Gaza made her feel moved so much to take action and to actually get arrested over this is so amazing. And similarly, I've heard people who have been joining, if not now, have been joining JDP, more and more people at all of the demonstrations I've been at. I think that this is a real sea change, especially for my generation and younger, who we can't look away from what we're seeing. And we see that it isn't matching up with what we've been taught our whole lives. That's a good positive note to end on. I I think that'd be a a good place to wrap this up because there is, there is definitely room for growth for a lot of people. There's definitely ways to channel your frustration, your grief, your anger into positive action for peace to prevent any further unnecessary killing and that is really exciting to hear that that's such a that, that could be such a rapid change for somebody is really encouraging. So Mindy, if you were to recommend somebody to somebody to get involved, where would they look? How would they go about that? Yeah, I think one, everyone should be calling their representatives every single day. Like you said, it's really easy and it really does work. And even if you're scared of the phone, get over it. This is like, um, and I think follow Jewish Voice for Peace. That's who I'm a member of, or I'm a member of that organization. Um, Follow them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, get on their mailing list. Same with If Not Now, just get involved with any organization. If you're not Jewish or prefer a secular, non-religious in any way space, DSA, I'm also a member. Uh, They are doing amazing work on the ceasefire, I actually got a call from a member tonight who connected me to Senator Bernie Sanders, where I was able to leave a message um, asking him to support the ceasefire. So I think any of those organizations would get you immediately plugged in. There's always work to do. You can start small and everyone has a role to play and everyone is important. And I, I think the time is really now. I think we're going to look back on this moment in 50 years and I want to be able to say, like, I did everything I could to do the right thing. And I think everyone should feel that way. To what you were just saying, too, like, while we're holding people accountable, I got to say, it is disappointing. As one of Bernie Sanders' chief uh, foreign interference uh, Bernie bros, (laughs) the fact that he's not really even coming up for a ceasefire yet, he's basically just totally repeating verbatim, like, the where the Biden administration is on that. That, to me, I think is one of the more disappointing things that I can imagine in this moment in terms of people that caucused with the democratic party, he was always one of the better voices, I guess, on this issue, supporting Palestinians and criticizing Israel. And the fact that he has, I think kind of failed to live up to that moment when his own base his the activists are part of his uh, campaign, the campaign staffers. There's a, there was a number of them that have been trying to reach out to him to, to, push him on this. I think it's been really disappointing that he's, he's kind of failed to uh, uh, call for a ceasefire at this time. And it is, his position is totally indistinguishable from the totally like pro genocide uh, Biden administration, which I think is 
pretty awful. Totally. No, I'm, I'm honestly like really devastated by it because I too am a Bernard brother of the the female (laughs) variety. And I, I went to Nevada, um, to help with the, uh, strip caucus in Las Vegas, which we won and it was amazing. And, you know, he's not perfect, but this is a really big misstep, especially because he's not running for president. He's old. This is really it for him. And I don't think that he would want this to be his legacy. And I hope he is able to change his mind and listen to his number one fan, me. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you to Bernie's number one fan uh, for, for joining us. We greatly, greatly appreciate your time and your insight. Where can people follow you and find more of your work? Thanks. You can follow me on Twitter or X, um, just my first and last name, but only if you're nice, because if you're mean, I don't want you. I don't need that bad. No meals. <laughs> yeah. No meanies. Mindy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.